Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I've got Brad Feld on. Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. And um, Brad, this is our, actually our second attempt at this, as you know. The, the first time, um, the studio that was in the middle uh, lost the recording, and so I've stopped using all studios and just record myself. Yeah, that shit happens in this world, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful though that you agreed to come on again instead of being really pissed at me. So, so that was a good not, thing. Not, not pissed at all. No value in that. I've lost plenty of data in my life. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, basically computers like invented losing data. Like nobody lost data really before then, unless like Ernest Hemingway supposedly lost a novel in the back of a a cab once, but that that that, that sort of thing was rare. But it's, it's, it's a fascinating time. I'm reading a uh, biography on Ben Franklin, Walter Isaacson's biography, and I was thinking last night I was, I was reading about the, the latency of communication in the 1700s. You know, it took two months to get a letter uh, back and forth from England. And, you know, the, the Postal Service that Franklin was the postmaster of for quite some time was pretty good up and down the East Coast. But, you know, this notion that you had literally two months between writing the letter and getting somewhere, and the chance of that letter actually getting to the person you sent it to uh, should make us feel a little bit better about the day we lose today. Yeah, and it's not only that. It's not only the speed by which you get a message to somebody. It's the anger which people get uh, if they don't get a response instantly. <laughs> yep. So, like, I'll you know, someone could send a message to me. And then if I don't respond for like let's say three or four days, which might be normal, or a week, which might be normal, they'll they'll be like, "Oh, I thought you were a better human being than this." Like people will judge my whole existence based on the speed by which I return like a, an SMS text. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally irrational. I'm 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 in my late forties, and I was younger. I remember this you know this this magical thing called uh, FedEx, and then this other magical thing called fax. And how everybody complained about how the pace of business was so radically disrupted by the fact that you could overnight somebody a letter or that you could literally put a letter in a machine and have it come out the other end. Uh, and if we think about just in, you know, 25, 30 years, uh, how we've gotten to the point where if you don't respond to a text message instantaneously, you're an asshole. Uh, you know, you lose all, all sense of perspective. 
I want to. I want to actually add to that, but first, I want to properly introduce you. You're a well-known venture capitalist. Before that, you were an entrepreneur. You're also an angel investor. Uh, you've invested in companies like Zynga and Fitbit. But even m- more interesting to me, uh, it seems like you've gotten interested in publishing. You started a publishing company. You've you've actually been. I don't know how you did this, but you've been publishing some of my favorite authors as if you've like been pulling them out of my head and then publishing them. And you've also written books about uh, not only, you know, entrepreneurship, but, you know, kind of the work-life balance of being an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist and how you deal with that. Because uh, that's that's ultimately the most important thing in, in, in what we do. Like I'm, I do a lot of investing and I'm in a lot involved in a lot of different activities and I'm on a bunch of boards, but ultimately if I don't kind of focus on wife and kids, then I feel something is subtracted out of my life. And I think you bring that point off really well in, in some of your books and writings. Thanks. Uh, you know, it's a, it's part of the journey. I was on a call uh, earlier, I did a talk to the class, an MBA class at Kellogg today, and, and somebody asked me a you know a question about you know strengths and weaknesses of uh, something I can't remember exactly the, the context. And my response, which I just saw tweeted out, was uh, fundamentally we're big bags of chemicals. Human mm-hmm. beings, and as humans, we you know we have strengths and weaknesses, and they vary by person, um, and we get wrapped up in this importance, self-importance, and importance of what we do. And we don't abstract away what's actually important in the fact that we're back to chemicals on this planet for a finite amount of time. And when you lose sight of that, and you've written incredibly eloquently about it, it's, it's very you. provocative and, and a blast. I mean, it's part of the fun of, of, of knowing you and following you is, is how openly you write about it and challenge people to think themselves. I think especially in the context of entrepreneurship and the context of investors and the context of being successful and what you have to do to be successful, we lose sight of the fact that at the end, the lights go out and, you know, we go away. We don't exist anymore. And whatever you believe about the afterlife, it's the experience that you're having here that you have so much control over. Uh, and it's so important to invest in understanding but if you allow it to be controlled by somebody else and framed by somebody else, fundamentally, it's to be very, very unsatisfying. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's interesting. I think as one gets older, you move from a life of ambition to a life of meaning. And that happens for a lot of reasons, I think both evolutionary and just basic experience. But it happens sort of in in the 40s, I feel like you you, uh, work really, really hard in the 20s. Like you, you started companies, you invested in companies, you were, you know, practically killing yourself over companies. But then gradually, I I've seen it in your writings. Uh, you focus a lot more. There, there's a lot more minimalism in both your time and your activities, like a philosophy of minimalism. Uh, and I think that's that's very important to have to have that kind of balance. I think it's the evolution over time is powerful to think about also in terms of natural length of the human. I mean, Amy and I, my wife Amy and I, went on a, on a sabbatical for 30 days. You know, totally off the grid, no email, no phone. Um, my vacation responder was, I'm not going to check this email. You know, if you want me to see it, send it again after December 8th. If it's urgent, I've got three partners, you know, they'll take care of it, send it to one of them. 
Um, and my three partners covered for me while I was gone, and we've each done this for each other over the course of the last year. Um, during that period of time, Amy and I ended up in these conversations where, you know, we're both, again, late 40s, I just turned 49, and in a normative case, we have 30 more good years. So, you know, 80 is kind of a good, a good long life, and, you know, maybe it's longer, hopefully it's longer, maybe it's shorter. There's an awful lot of people when you're 49, all of a sudden some people have died that are younger than you that have died not because they were in some tragic accident, but because they just died. And <laughs> lots of people die in their 50s and their 60s, and you start to confront this notion that it's not endless in front of you, that it's finite. And then what do you want to do in that finite time? And to your point, this notion of thinking about what's meaningful versus just accomplishing things for a lot of people becomes front of mind. Not for everybody. I mean, we all know lots and lots of people who, you know, the cliche uh, of somebody on their deathbed saying, I wish I hadn't worked as much, right, or whatever. Or, you know, the people that worked until they retired and then died two days after they retired in a car accident or got cancer shortly after they retired and, you know, a year later were dead and didn't get to do the thing they were going to do for the next 20 years with their, their beloved those are things that as humans, as entrepreneurs, as business people, as whatever you are, reflecting on it at all stages of life, I think is super useful. I, I agree. And so the question I have for you is, when when was the tipping point for you where you were starting to feel this? Like, when were you kind of hitting, I don't want to say hitting bottom, because that's almost like a cliche sort of phrase, but when, when were you sort of torn up inside where... You thought to yourself, boy, something is wrong. Something has to change. Well, I've had, I've had uh, three major moments in my life, and they've all been defined by um, extended clinical depression um, that that were in these moments. Um, I talk about two of them in a book that my wife Amy and I wrote uh, called Startup Life. Um, the first one was in my mid-20s. Uh, and I won't spend much time on that, but that was very defining in that um, I, I ended up getting divorced. I dropped out of a PhD program, uh, and it, it led me on a path to selling my first company, which was a successful company that I was very bored of being involved in at that point. Um, that that moment in time was very difficult because it was it was very it was the first time I was ever deeply depressed or acknowledged that I was depressed. It lasted for a long time, almost two years. What what did it function when you say you were depressed and you were functional, functional enough to run a company, what what did you feel? Like you woke you woke up in the morning, what did it feel like? There, there was no joy in anything I did. So I woke up in the morning, getting out of bed was a struggle. Um I felt like I was I was suiting up in my armor every day. And I was clanking in my armor to battle. And I was battling and using every bit of energy I had just to get through the day and do my work and do it in a way where nobody knew that I was as depressed as I was. So, you know, where people, I was the CEO, I was a leader, I had to be, you know, strong and courageous. And, and at, the, at the end of the day, when I was done, and I had long days, oftentimes I would come home and I had absolutely nothing left. My evenings often consisted of uh, sitting in the bathtub, you know, for a couple of hours doing nothing. Um, I, could, I couldn't read. I couldn't concentrate. I didn't want to go to a movie. I didn't want to go to dinner. I didn't want to do anything. And you, you, just, the time, 
you describe it as a as a clinical depression, kind of implying that there was something internal going on. But what external events might have triggered it? Because I think they're kind of hand in hand. Well, if I if I look at that experience and I look at the other two experiences that I can describe it, the, so quickly the other two experiences were once when I was in my mid thirties, uh, which which uh, uh, coincided with the collapse of the internet bubble, um, and just the incredible amount of work and pressure both on the rise of all the companies I was involved in, and then the rapid failure of many of those companies, combined with not taking care of myself. And then the trigger point for the depression was 9-11. I was in New York on 9-11. I was not in harm's way in any way, shape, or form, but just the emotional and existential shock of it combined with all of the other pressure was the trigger. And then in my uh, in my late 40s, uh, this happened in 2000, beginning of 2013, in the 2012, um, uh, in the springtime of 2012, I ran a 50-mile race, a marathon runner. I'd run my first ultra. And I never really took the time to recover. So physiologically, I was exhausted uh, from the point in April that I ran the race throughout the year. In September, I had a near-death bike accident. Um, got totally lucky that I, 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 I didn't die. I smashed into one of my, my business partners, Ryan. He, he effectively saved my life by being in my way. Um, I was pretty banged up. I didn't recover physically from that, and I ran a marathon about a month later. Um, so I was completely depleted. And then at the end of the year, I ended up with a kidney stone. All these things are linked, of course. And so it was a series of physical and physiological events um, that were a function of me not really knowing how to govern my energy and how much energy, you know, I was completely exhausted, but I wasn't able to pull back from the work and the travel from the things I had to do or felt like I had to do to the point where I, I completely decompensated. Uh, and Amy likes to say that last depression was my inner introvert finally threw a shit fit and said, enough already, and, and shut me down. So those three things had different triggers, right? The trigger in my 20s was probably a mixture of the first time I was really facing failure, right? Failure of a marriage, uh, failure of academically for the first time, getting kicked out of the PhD program, boredom, being involved in a business that was successful but was not stimulating, um, but not really understanding what was important about my motivational structure. Turns out to sort of side, I'm very intrinsically motivated by learning. I'm not very extrinsically motivated by accolades. So if you tell me I'm a a great guy, or I win an award. I, I learned how to be gracious about that stuff, but it doesn't do anything to my motivational structure. If I'm bored, that's a huge downer for me. Being bored is the equivalent of uh, somebody who's extrinsically motivated being told that they suck. Um, so hmm. in my 30s, uh, the trigger really was the same kind of thing, just this incredible, intense amount of energy depletion, being physically tired, um, I was probably somewhat bored of the work because at some point, you know, you're dealing with the same shit over and over again as everything's falling apart. And then this, uh, in the middle of all of this, Amy and I were struggling with our own relationship. Uh, we'd been together for a decade, and she was very un unsatisfied with our interaction. She, we loved each other. Um, you know, we were, we were best friends. But as she liked to say, I'd become a shitty roommate. I was on the road all the time, work dominated, 
And most importantly, my words and my actions didn't sync up. I would say to Amy that she was the most important person in my life and would be in the middle of a conversation and my cell phone would ring. This was before caller ID. And I'd literally pick up my phone and start talking. And hey, hi, it's Brett. Who is this? In the middle of our conversation without acknowledging it, without like ignoring, like it's just wrong. Hmm. Um, you know, I would tell her I'd be somewhere at a certain time and I'd be an hour late. And I'd be an hour late and I'd have no reason and I wouldn't call in advance of being late. And I would just, well, I had to do a couple more emails or I had a meeting that ran late. So my words and my actions didn't meet up. And then on top of that, having this exogenous shock of, of 9-11, which I think, you know, really shook everybody to their core, right? It was a, a, a powerful, powerful moment. It was not, you know, something that was easy to, uh, easy to relate to, lots of confusion about what actually happened. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that was it. And then, of course, I, I described the one, you know, in my 40s and how that all played out. And, you know, all of it to me seems related to energy depletion and combined with rejuvenation to come out of it. Because even like when you're when your words don't combine with your actions, it's like you're living two lives and to live two lives, you need two extra sets of energy, body energy. And again, that leads to to quick energy depletion. Um and, and boredom also leads to energy depletion because when you're excited about something, it gives you this boost of, you know, endorphins or dopamine or whatever to give you energy. If you're bored, you don't have that energy and it depletes very easily. And so it seems like one of the ways you've kind of um, self-cured in some sense is figuring out how to, uh, A, not expend as much energy and B, uh, rejuvenate your energy. I, I think well summarized. I add one thing to it is uh, it's different by person. So what I just described for myself might or might not map to you or you know random person listening. The a powerful human trait is the ability to go on your own inquisition of self, right? To try to understand yourself and whether you know you do it in a uh, a religious way or a spiritual way, or you do it with a uh, psychologist, or you do it with, with a, a partner, a life partner, or you do it, you know, through meditation, or you do it on your own. It doesn't matter what the mechanism for it is. This notion of self-exploration, understanding what adds to your energy level, adds to your tank, makes you feel good, makes you feel positive feedback loops that that give you sustenance and nourishment as a human, and the opposite, what takes away energy, understanding that for yourself, and then trying to have those be basic principles in your life, knowing that you'll never get it right. I mean, I do plenty of things that, that, you know, are boring to me. I try to do as little as possible. I have plenty of situations, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert that lives in an extrovert's world. Um, I'm perfectly capable of uh, as an introvert living in an extrovert's world, you know, giving a talk to a bunch of people. I spend a lot of time out in the world with lots of people, but I know that that drains me of energy and that I need to then have alone time to recover from it. I didn't used to respect that, right? So if I'm on the road for six weeks continually in presentations and meetings and giving talks and traveling all over the place, that's too much. I I personally can't handle it. Like if I travel around giving talks and, you know, I'm sure you get invited to a lot of talks, uh, 
it's difficult. It, it, it drains me. A two-day trip will drain me for the entire week. That's right. And the first part of it is there's lots of people who that gives them energy. Think of all of the people in the world who, if they were alone, you know, you say, what, what's your worst nightmare? My worst nightmare is having dinner alone. My worst nightmare would be getting home at night with nothing to do. Well, for an introvert, that's a fucking blessing. <laughs> the night with nothing scheduled and home alone is, is wonderful, or home alone with just Amy is wonderful. Um, so understanding yourself in that is so important. So so right now, how do you balance that as a venture capitalist? Because a VC is almost like uh, being an entrepreneur in many companies at once. Like, you know, do you look for entrepreneurs who are very self-sufficient and far along or you know how do you how is this kind of um integrated with your job as a venture capitalist well it's evolved over time both as i've gotten uh, i'd like to think better at what i do on a day-to-day basis at the vc but also as i've learned how to be um helpful uh and and impactful um you know, there are a number of tactical things that have changed. Um, some, you know, as recently as the last couple of years, and I'll describe them in a sec. But there's also the, the sense of uh, understanding how and where to spend my time and how and where my time is well spent. I, I used to have this illusion when there was a problem in something I was involved, a company I was involved in, that physically being there would help solve the problem. And so I did to myself a lot of probably you know, physical damage and exhaustion by having these immediate urgent reactions that included, because I couldn't teleport anywhere, um, you know, rushing to the airport and rushing to a place to be somewhere to try to help fix a problem. Um, this is this is a fascinating insight, by the way, because I think most people have that reaction, and I find traveling on a plane to a meeting rarely accomplishes anything. Well, it, 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 what it does is it accomplishes oftentimes making you tired and wasting time and then creating a lack of ability for you and the people that need to engage in the problem to have clarity of thought around the problem. And a lot of times the problem, the data that you have when you arrive together is incomplete data. So then you need to let more time pass to get more data because you can't solve everything immediately. So, you know, One of the things was losing the hero syndrome. I don't view myself as the hero that can fly in with my cape and solve the problem. I'm a participant in helping solve the problem, but I'm not the hero. What about, though, though, when you have to do due diligence on a company before you invest? Don't you fly out then and, and look? No, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think you have to do that. It's very interesting the different types of approaches people take to understanding a company. Um, I think 15 years ago, it was very hard to do any sort of real diligence and understanding uh, on an investment uh, without physically spending time with the people uh, at, at their place of business. Um, there are enormous number of things you can do today without spending huge amounts of physical time with people where you have to transport yourself somewhere else. So I've done, I've made investments where I've never met them. I've never met the people face-to-face before I made, made the investment. This doesn't mean that I haven't had deep interactions with them. It doesn't mean that we haven't, haven't had long, uh, uh, substantial uh, interactions, you know, via video conference. It doesn't mean that we haven't done deep work. But it doesn't mean that, you know, the world is one where 
you show up and you have to do things a certain way. Um, another thing that's useful, and you separate across the whole dynamic, right? The network that you build today, sure, there's still lots of value of the physical interaction face-to-face in the networks that we create, but that physical interaction is often modulated by gatekeepers. And if we think about the gatekeepers that that physical interaction you know, gets modulated by, a venture capital firm, for example, a lot of that gets modulated by um, uh, in a venture capital firm associates, right? There are junior people that work for senior partners who interact with the company to give the partners theoretically leverage. Uh, at, at Founder Group, we don't have any associates. The four of us, I've got three partners, we're all equal. We all do all the work. So we don't have this dynamic where we're getting filtered information or we're trying to create work for either the people that work for us or the companies. We just interact directly with the entrepreneurs and we go deep on the stuff that we view, you know, through our experiences being important to know and understand. I think that works the other side of it as well when, you know, when you're an investor in a company and, and something comes up. If you're continuously engaged in the company with the CEO and with the entrepreneurs, you don't, you don't have this moment-to-moment crisis. You know what's going on. You know what the challenges are. When something goes wrong that you have to deal with, you can just jump into it. So, so let me ask you because I, I know we have uh, limited time. Like, what, what do you look for in an entrepreneur? What to you represents the ideal sort of entrepreneur that you would invest in? I've gone through a cycle of how I think about investing over the last 20 years where I've come back today to where I started. So my approach today is very similar to my approach in the mid-90s when I started. We have a set of themes as a firm that we know extremely well and that we made lots of investments and have deep domain knowledge in. That's what we invest in. So we constrain ourselves to what we look at based on a set of themes, geography, namely the U.S., uh, in Canada, and then stage, which is early stage, but not at the very beginning. It doesn't have to be at the very, very beginning, but early stage in Canada. And what themes? The themes vary. We have a half a dozen that are active right now, but they evolve over time. They're abstract and they're broadly horizontal, so I'll, I'll rattle a few off. Human-computer interaction is a theme. That's based on the premise that the way that humans and computers interact is radically changing and will continue to change over the next 20 years. Protocol is a theme that you can, the premise is that you can build very significant technology companies around protocols, both proprietary, IETF, uh, protocols, and ad hoc protocols. For example, SMTP, which is the protocol underlying email, we still make lots of investments around things that do stuff with SMTP. Really, like email like plugins or email. You know, all, all, all over the place. We we had um uh you know we're we're very we're investors in a company that's been around for a long time uh, called Return Path. That's a very large company based in New York. Uh, a couple of years ago, we invested in a very fast growing company uh, called SendGrid. That's now one of the leaders or is the leader in transactional email services. Hmm. Um, so you know we believe that SMTP as a protocol is still an important one, but not the only one. We're investors in a company called. Uh, urban Airship in Portland, which essentially is the market leader in doing things for push notifications. So probably somewhere between 25 and 50% of the push notifications that you get on an iPhone or an Android phone are sent through Urban Airship's infrastructure. That's not a IETF standardized protocol, but it's a protocol. Now, iOS has its protocol and, uh, and Android has its protocol. So we have these themes, and then my filter is very simple, and I would say my partners and I share this, this filter. Number one, is the product 
interesting to us. We care about, have affinity for, have interest in the product. Number two, if no, we're done. Now, if, if you don't get through the theme filter, we don't look at it. But let's say we get through the theme filter. If there's no affinity for the product on our part, we don't engage. Next, are the entrepreneurs obsessed about the product? They're not passionate. Are they obsessed? Is this product, is this thing they're building, their obsession on the planet? If no, we're, we're done. And then the third is, do these entrepreneurs want to be long-term partners with us, and do we want to be long-term partners with them? It's both directions. So, you know, there's lots of situations where we don't want to be partners with them, but there's some situations where as entrepreneurs, they don't think we're the best partner for them, and that's totally fine with us. If we're not the best partner for them, we're not a good fit for them from an investment perspective. That's the essence of it. So our evaluation of whether or not we want to invest in, in a company is around those characteristics because we're investing in things that we know and understand really well. Well, you know, I want to I, I want to respect your time, and we have a few minutes left. Um, but what really fascinates me also with you is that not only do you write books, but you've started a publishing company, and uh, you even just published or about to publish Ben Mesrick's, uh, who's uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, his book Q, uh, I guess a novella that's coming out. Like, how did you start a publishing company? How do you find these authors? Do you pay them in advance? Because he could probably get a big advance, you know, somewhere else. How did that come about? So we, we started a publishing company. It's called FG Press, and you can see it FGPress.com. Because um, I've written uh, a number of books, a couple with my partners. One with Jason Mendelson, uh, who's one of my partners, a book called Venture Deals, done very, very well. And I worked with, uh, with Wiley as a traditional publisher, and they were very good to work with. But there were numerous things about the publishing process, uh, all the way through the process, including post, you know, post publishing and actually the sale marketing, uh, that were just frustrating and maddening and very, very hard to change. Um, we decided, uh, to start FG Press to experiment with a bunch of different things. Um, as well as then publish our own books and books from people that we, we either knew or met who we thought were extraordinary and either, you know, talented existing writers or first time writers. Both, both were going to be in our, our universe. So that, that was the reason for it. FG Press been around for a year. We published a half dozen, I think eight books now. Um, we've got, uh, about a book a month coming, including my next book, Startup Opportunities, will be out in March. Oh, great. And, um, uh, and by the way, Startup Opportunities, just to put the plug for it, is a book aimed at the, at the person who's thinking about being an entrepreneur. So I get asked the question continually every day via email, is this a good idea? I'm thinking about being an entrepreneur. Should I start a company? So it's that book that you read before you take it to jump. That's great. Um, I'm going to recommend this book. It, it's, it's, you know, we, we try to do it in a way that's not techy. So it's not just aimed at tech companies, but aimed at any, any kind of entrepreneur, whether you be fashion or natural foods or physical products. What, what do you then, recommend uh, entrepreneurs read right now before your book well, comes out? The, the, the goal of that book is for that book to be the book. Today, I, I recommend two books. One is a book called Do More Faster that David Cohen and I wrote. David's the CEO of Techstars. And Do More Faster was written, it's a bunch of stories from mentors uh, and entrepreneurs that went through the Techstars program. And the other book I recommend is Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup, uh, which I think is an extraordinary book. Uh, but it does have an assumption that you have some sense of what you're doing already in terms of how you're going to iterate. There's right. a bunch of other stuff. Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad, 
uh, work is incredible, and that was the, the, the basic work that led to Eric's uh, book leading startup. But our hope with, my hope with startup opportunities, which I've written with a, a professor at Ryerson and Canada, uh, Sean Wise, is to give you a book that will cause you then to have better context for reading uh, uh, reading either of those books. Uh, the last in the mix, and we talked about these in the book, Startup Opportunity, is a book from Bill Hallett, who's the head of the MIT Entrepreneurship Program, uh, called Disciplined Entrepreneurship, which is another excellent one. Last, last comment on all that, though, back to, back to the publishing, Ben's book, Ben answered. I, I love Ben. I met him uh, through Neil Robertson, who's an entrepreneur, who's a good friend of Ben. Uh, Neil's an entrepreneur. We funded it a number of times. Um, ben wrote uh, a, a very iconic book called um, uh, Bringing Down a House, which uh, sure. turned into movie, movie 21. Jeff Ma, who was the person who was the sort of lead character profile in that book, was a member, you know, member of the MIT Blackjack team. He's a friend of Neil's. I've met Jeff. He's an entrepreneur. I uh, have a company called 10Xer. Great guy. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of all of these linkages between these people who are entrepreneurial good friends. Ben, of course, can get any advance he wants from any publisher. He works on these very, very broad, uh, uh, very broad platform. And he'd written this, this book called Q, which he had never really published. It, it's a completely, uh, uh, contemporary book because if you think about what it, it's about the, a virus and how a virus can change the way society works, it's all about Ebola getting out of control and how the world looks a couple of years later after Ebola has gotten out of control. It's a novella, so it's a short book. He wanted to do it as digital only. He wanted to do it as a novella, a 100-page book instead of a classic 200-250 page book. I loved it. And, you know, uh, Neil and Ben both wanted to do some experimental stuff that the traditional publishing process probably would uh, struggle with. And we said, absolutely, this is the kind of thing that we want to publish, experiment, and play with. Because if you go back to my investment thesis, right, is it a product that we like? Yes. Is it a person who's obsessed with the product? Yes. Is it a person who we want to be long-term partners with and they want to be long-term partners with us? Yes easy decision to do a project like that. That's great. Well, uh, you know, Brad, I have, um, I saw on your blog, you like uh, sci-fi books and biographies about presidents. So I have two books to recommend for you, actually. Do you mind? Go for it. Uh, the Martian by Andy Weir. One of my favorite books in 2014. I, I just, um, I, I just I, interviewed I, Andy, actually. He's a great guy. It's, uh, uh, I will listen to the inter interview. It's a fantastic book. I read it. Uh, my wife and I have a house at home in Alaska near where she grew up, and we go up there oftentimes for three or four weeks at a time and just, you know, work but hang out there, change the venue. And I started reading it one night. My neighbor recommended it to me right after it came out. I started reading it, I think, at around, you know, eight o'clock at night. Uh, and I think I finished it at about four in the morning. Uh, and that's unusual for me. You know, I mean, I'm a fast reader, but normally, uh, if I start a book, uh, maybe maybe it was I started at ten o'clock at night later than that, and, and ended at one morning. But if I start a book late at night, you know, I'll read an hour or two. I won't go all the way through. Man, that book was awesome. Yeah, no, I had a similar experience, and. Uh... Just spoke with him. Great guy. Uh, this was like his dream come true. Bestseller. There. Next Thanksgiving, the movie comes out. Like it's it's great. And then the other book I bet you haven't read, which is uh, Daniel O'Brien's How to Fight Presidents, and he basically right. analyzes each president about whether or not 
you can kick their ass or not. Uh, I, I will I will go on Amazon and grab that one. I have not read that one, and it's uh, it's a good one to add to my presidential theme list. Yes, I, I have two similar obsessions, so I, I like those types of books as well. So, Brad, I really appreciate it. Um, thanks so much. I'm going to stop the recording for a second, but I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast, and thanks once again. My pleasure, man. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wick donald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wick donald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last